Hello. It's the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a monthly satirical news review. Every first Wednesday of the month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago, we have people come on, they read op-eds, they do a debate. It's fun. It's funny. You'll like it. Here's a recording of it. We recorded this one on a Wednesday, October 5th, 2016. Oh, I hope you like it. It's our 12th one. We're a year old. Um, the Skewer is a live monthly satirical news review where we talk about the news of the previous month, kind of like make fun of it and stuff. It's great. We have op-eds, uh, and then we finish it off with a debate. And this is the Skewer's 12th show. Guys, we made it a year! When we started the show off, um, I was the co-producer. Uh, and co-host along with a good friend of mine, Eric Ruel. He can't be here today because he lives in Detroit now, and there's not going to be any sort of special video at the end where he says hello, so don't think there will be. He just won't. No, no treats for you. Anyway, uh, usually I start off with like a, like, a, like a goofy summer month of the month, but I wrote an op-ed this month too, because something happened this month that deeply matters to me. And I don't usually like to start these by name dropping, you know, great thinkers. I don't like to use highfalutin quotes or epigrams in my work. It comes off as full intellectual signposting, trying to make you look good because you know someone's smart. But in this case, I think I'm going to have to break that rule because the great philosopher William Corgan said it better than I ever will. The world is a vampire. Sense to Dre E.A. E.A.N. This month, the news came through that the rights to the Great British Bake Off had been purchased from the BBC by Channel 4 and that Mel, Sue, and Mary would be leading the program. To many of you, uh, that is news that is certainly comprised of English words. For others, the ones who booed correctly, it's a fucking gut punch straight to the dick right when we need Bake Off the most. The Great British Bake Off is at its core a reality cooking competition the same as any other. But it's so, so much more. It is beautiful and pure. It is elementally kind and delightful. It is a ray of perfect love shining from heaven and cleansing the blighted land it touches. Bake Off's most valuable asset is that it's nice. The people are nice, the atmosphere is nice, what they're doing is nice. To, to watch it is to be the crumpet or scone or scone or whatever twee British shit is being lovingly dunked into a steaming mug of tea on a wintry day. To watch Bake Off is to put on pajamas straight from the dryer. I fucking, fucking love Great British Bake Off. I'm white, it all fits. 
The bake-off contestants aren't hyper-competitive asshole pro chefs either who've spent years in the famously dehumanizing culinary industry learning to hate themselves, hate others, hate cooking, and hate food. Nah, they're amateurs. These are students who come to tapings in between their exams. There are moms who are relishing the opportunity to, opportunity to carve out a part of their lives for themselves again. There are middle-aged bus drivers who never dared to dream of anything like this. And there's none of that bullshit where they're like, I didn't come here to make friends, I came here to win. These people emphatically came here to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> they freely share advice. And if someone's flailing, they just they rush over and like, how can I help? It's beautiful. <laughs> These people are visibly extremely happy to be baking. And that's not a thing you see in a lot of TV cooking shows. And since these aren't, as I said, pro chefs who make a hundred gourmet dishes every day in their goddamn lives, they are heartbreakingly proud of everything they make. As someone who does a lot of creative work that's like, meh, that's inspiring to see. <laughs> the judges are, almost in, are the almost impossibly hilariously named Paul Hollywood, a flashy, critically acclaimed Silver Fox pro baker who styles himself as a Gordon Ramsay type, except he only makes bread. <laughs> and Mary Berry, an 80-year-old TV home chef who is criminally adorable and should be in adorable jail. <laughs> they have wildly different skill sets and cooking backgrounds, but holy shit, their chemistry is amazing. They're always good-heartedly needling each other about their baking habits, but then are always blown away by what the other can pull off that they couldn't. Their respect for each other is palpable. And as judges, they're never cruel, like you see in all other shows. Even on disastrous bakes, they're like, oh, here's, I, I'm so, so much sympathy for you. Here, have some advice, and don't give up. Because, you know, they know that you fuck up. They fucked up before. You fucked up before. I fucked up before. We've all fucked up before. And goddammit, it's so fucking hard to say that that's okay. And it never lingers over a contestant breaking down or losing it or gently licking, the, or rather greedily licking the tears off of their face as it feeds us illicit thrills at their misery. It's all about positivity. It's kind friends baking on an idyllic green field. The biggest scandal, the biggest scandal was when one baker accidentally used another person's frosting and the judges were like, well, that's an honest mistake. We won't punish you for it. <laughs> and they didn't. And they get to bake shit that you've heard of and like, like cakes and shit and cookies. <laughs> the judges aren't like, where's the innovation in this cake? They're like, mmm, this chocolate cake's dope. I like chocolate, like they should. <laughs> And this isn't some goddamn torture cooking like on chocolate. where they're like, fuck you, you dumbass turds. Today you have to make a terrine out of actual dog shit. And your mother's bones. I hope you never smile again. I put a curse on you if I knew how. And if you do that, the judges are like, fuck you, you goddamn bitch. You're chopped. I hate you. I chopped your dick off if the network let me. The point I'm making is that Bake Off is a miracle. A miracle in an asshole world that assaults us with bullshit at all times and wants us angry and anxious and wound up. And friends, this month, Bake Off died. 
<laughs> it died right in front of our faces, its heart noisily devoured by the vampire that is this hideous world. Imagine your favorite celebrity who somehow hasn't died yet in 2016. Picture them in your mind's eye. Do you have it? Yes. Cool. Now imagine they're just on TV doing whatever is characteristic for them, for I don't know what industry they're in, the person you're imagining. But they're on the TV, they're having a great time. And it's all of a sudden like a fucking ghoul falls out of a hot air balloon and lands on them, starts tearing out their organs and slowly eating them. And you want to change the channel, but uh, you got that fear paralysis where you just can't move. And or, you do change the channel, but it's on every channel because they hack the signal like Batman villains. So here's what happened. The show is now on Channel 4 instead of BBC. That pretty much means there's going to be commercials now that weren't before. Not a big deal, right? Seems fine. Then, it was announced that Mel and Sue, the show's presenters, will be leaving the program. Now, presenter is not a thing that's on most American TV shows. And uh, even after watching all seven seasons of this show, I'm not 100% clear on what Mel and Sue actually do. <laughs> They don't know anything about baking. They don't judge the food. Uh, they don't really do anything. They just kind of bop around and chat with the contestants and make bad puns and be a mildly famous British comedy duo from the 90s. So really, why does it matter if they leave? It's the key. This month, it was revealed that basically everything good about Bake Off all of the heart and kindness was something that Mel and Sue had to scrape and fight for, to de demand that it be included. The reason that the show doesn't linger on contestants' pain is because when they are in pain, Mel and Sue block the sight lines of all the cameras and recite swears to make the footage unusable. <laughs> they have threatened to quit multiple times when producers wanted to lean on a tragedy in a contestant's life to pry tears out of them. They knew that the natural form of TV and the world is a predatory, all-consuming love vampire that wants to slurp up the soul of everything that's good and laugh at its desiccated corpse. Example, the winner of the second season has a husband who is a shady-ass pro-gambler who is in jail for laundering 60 million pounds. They never mentioned that once on the show. You can just imagine the suits behind the scenes being like, Gilbert husband, doesn't make you sad? But no, no, they just let it be fun and nice and let her have a good time and win the goddamn competition. <laughs> Mel and Sue did that and now they're gone. And I guarantee that Bake Off will never come back as we know it. How do I know? I'm going to tell you. Because after seven seasons of this extremely profitable show that costs very little to put on, where are the copycats? Where are all the Bake Off alikes? I'll tell you, nowhere. Because the world at large does not understand, is fundamentally incapable of understanding why it's a good show. It's not about people uh, competing in a traditionally domestic activity. It's not about Britishness. It's not the aesthetic. It's the kindness, the friendship, the surrogate family that the contestants and the viewers form, the warmth and the tenderness, the shit I like. <laughs> they can't resist infecting things with conflict and cruelty. Bake Off was a place where you knew everyone would be happy, support each other, love each other. Love and happiness are fucking rare, you guys. You looked outside lately. 
We live in a world where an actual maniac demands that you check out a sex tape at 3 a.m. and winkingly embraces real Nazis under his big white tent. Police murder unarmed civilians in the street. There's just no consequence. Everything is scary. Everyone is mean. And I'm so, so tired. Bake Off was torn limb from limb this month, another casualty to a world which, again, is a vampire, which, like we established, was sent to drain the Yang. We lost a hero, a flower crushed under a goddamn jackboot. I am a great comedy show host. Um, so PBS has two seasons of The Great British Bake Off available to watch. There are actually seven, uh, but they're not available in the US. I don't know anything about torrenting. I, I certainly don't know what it is. I've never done it, and I'm not saying you do it. But maybe all seven seasons are available there. There's something in my, uh, I got it, okay. Anyway, moving on along to the op-ed portion of our nights. Our first reader uh, has performed at the Laugh Factory and also on this very show, where she performed one of my favorite op-eds of the whole of the whole show, please welcome everybody to Cara Mallard. Hi, everybody. I'm Takara, and uh, I'm a little tense uh, because I had the opportunity to go stress poop. Uh, but I didn't do it, and, uh, <laughs> just bear with me. I, uh, I wrote a letter, and, uh, I'm gonna read it to you guys. Woo! Read it! Yay! Words! Okay! Nice. <coughs> Dear Senator Ted Cruz, don't know me, but I don't like you. <laughs> and I would love for that feeling to be based solely on your political leaning. You know, your values do oscillate in the opposite direction of mine, but I also hate your nose. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> um, it looks like someone went in for a high five too aggressively and just clocked you one good time in the old sniff sniff. It just doesn't look right, and it makes me uneasy, and I don't trust it. <laughs> um, I guess that makes me what the Tumblr kids call a body shamer, um, but I don't care. I don't care. That's my truth. Ted, the only thing I hate more than you kissing up to gun lobbyists is your fucking claymation, Jack Frost. No. Um, and if you don't know it, feel free to Google it, um, since I'm sure you have no real appreciation for childhood entertainment, or children for that matter, because if so, after the Sandy Hook shooting, you wouldn't have gone out of your way to stop Obama's push for new gun control laws. Uh, but I'm not uh, talking about your uh, Pinocchio snout in this letter. I'm writing because recently, and a move I can only describe as um, um, basic bitch-like. <laughs> you endorsed Donald Trump for the presidency of these 
here United States of America. Wow! Wow, 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 wow. Um, I'm just curious about how this happened uh, since in the past you have called Donald Trump um, a pathological liar, a serial philanderer, consistently disgraceful, <laughs> a sniveling coward, utterly immoral, and a narcissist at a level I don't think this country's ever seen or will see again. <laughs> Damn, son, you hate him. <laughs> at the Republican National Convention, I found you to be slightly heroic as you told the crowd in front of you to vote their conscience and then said, please don't stay home in November if you love our country and if you love your children as much as I know you do, stand and speak and vote. Vote for candidates up and down the ticket who you trust to defend our freedom and to be faithful to the Constitution of the United States of America. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Which basically means, <coughs> Trump, not in my America. And then everyone booed you, they booed you hard, man. Everyone but me. I sat in my living room and I clapped. Motherfucker, I clapped for you. In that moment, Senator Cruz, in that moment specifically, you and I were on the same side. This whole race for the presidency, it's just been one long bad movie and you know, if I had to title it something, I would call it, you know, um, Tyler Perry presents Donald Trump and Medea Race to the White House. Um, um, and I thought the credits to this bad movie were going to end soon because you're brave enough to say this is too much. But, but then, like a freshman in college living on Pop-Tarts and pizza, you got And in the middle of September, via Facebook, no less, you told everyone that after searching your conscience and talking to God, you are casting your ballot for Donald Trump. Donald Trump! Why? That not-so-fun version of Scrooge McDuck has called you unhinged, desperate, Worse than Hillary, <laughs> and my personal favorite, Lion Ted, because it sounds friendly-like. <laughs> Trump has accused your father of conspiring to kill JFK, and he basically called your wife ugly. <laughs> On the internet, twice, <laughs> with a meme, and then a side-by-side, -side. and another meme. He just kept sharing all damn day. His politics are not based in reality. He's more opportunist than conservative, more liar than leader. The man even said, even if you do endorse him, he wouldn't accept it. But then you did. In your now infamous message, you laid out six urgent policy concerns that compelled you to vote for Trump, the Supreme Court, 
the Bill of Rights, Obamacare, energy, immigration, national security, and internet freedom. And basically what you were trying to say was that by endorsing Trump, you were advancing conservative politics because you are hashtag never Hillary. Um, but don't you think that was a rather big sacrifice, Ted? Some political pundits and Republicans, Republicans say that by giving your endorsement to Donald Trump, you've committed political suicide. What's that old saying? Always a senator, never a president. <laughs> there are many more powerful conservative politicians that lauded your attempt to not succumb to Jabba the Hutt 2.0. But then you did it anyway, and you broke their heart. Others uh, think that that move was more calculated. Rumor has it, Teddy, that you're a hard man to get along with. Your endorsement of Trump was you trying to show all those conservative guys and gals that you're a team player and will sacrifice your pride for the GOP. Personally, I've come up with my own reasons for why you endorsed the Donald. I'd like to share those with you in this letter. Number one, God led you astray. <laughs> Um, I'm still reading articles about your decision, and they all said you prayed to God for the answer. I don't know what God you prayed to, but it was probably the wrong one. <laughs> In my humble opinion, maybe you should seek a second opinion from another God. One that leaves the Washington Post, maybe. <laughs> Number two, someone's blackmailing you. I'm sure you have a lot of deep, dark secrets, Ted Cruz, from Canada. <laughs> Some things have finally cut up to your past, and I bet you 100 slices of Canadian bacon that you are merely the puppet and someone else is pulling the strings. You always try to make it seem as if you're the lawn man in the city, leading with any integrity, but the truth is, you've got something to hide. Ted Cruz from Canada. And number three, you don't like women. <laughs> Don't say boys rule and girls rule. I bet you think that the He-Man woman in your club is a real thing. You were so anti-Trump for so long, but then guess last month you remember he has a penis. And I, so I guess that news saying is correct. You know, bros before immensely qualified yet still problematic women who would do less damage in four years than the other guy. You don't need to respond to this letter because I know you'll just deny, deny, deny. And I can't stand any more lies, Senator Cruz. I can barely stomach this election. All I can hope for is that people ignore your endorsement and take the advice that you gave at the RNC. That we, the people, rise and vote for candidates up and down the ticket who we trust to defend our freedom and to be, and to be faithful to the Constitution and to be faithful to the Constitution. If we do not, Donald Trump and Medea will win. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. I just want to add this because I love this little tidbit about Ted Cruz's personality. Quit 
Another reason he might have endorsed Trump is if Trump bought him a gift and he took a whole bunch of cans of soup. <laughs> he loves cans of soup. It's all he eats. He just goes to the store and buys a hundred soups. Anyway. Um, <laughs> our next op-ed reader is uh, the film editor at Consequence of Sound, a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, and a former pro wrestling dirt sheet staff writer. He's also, uh, he has recently become a millionaire after being paid off by uh, Marvel to review the DC Comics movies poorly. I'm getting that correct, right? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Uh, Dominic Mayer. Thank you, thank you. I, uh, I hatched a hitman land way here, and it's a very exciting time in my life. So I'm gonna be reading from a phone, so bear with me, but I feel like we can all agree that music made by name actors, specifically actors who've been doing it for a little too long, is not that great, more often than not. There, there's a kind of spectrum for this. On the one end, you have your Sheen Hymns, your Tenacious D, bands that serve less as vanity projects and more as fulfilling side endeavors for artistic types. On the other, you have your Dirty Thirties, your Odd Foot of Grunts, and Seconds to Mars. The latter, which is probably the worst band to ever have one of its members claim an Academy Award and figure prominently into a Rick Ross featuring Skrillex video. <laughs> but every so often, an actor takes it a step further, or several steps further, and I start off by invoking Rosé and Skrillex not just to prove that the hot topic at the Yorktown Mall in Lombard, Illinois never truly leaves the boy, but because my subject today is Skrillex's actual doppelganger. While I don't hope that Corey Feldman and he meet for fear that they'd shake hands and thus welcome the apocalypse the way that Southland Tales warned me about a decade ago, Feldman has returned to prominence over the past few weeks thanks to doing the number one thing a person can do in hopes of returning to prominence one day, performing a meme-ready new song off his album titled Angelic to the Core <laughs> in public. The song is called Go For It. It is well and truly something, and because I can't really talk about it further without you just getting on my wavelength, uh, let's roll the tape. sufficiently had our <laughs> Now, the first thing I'm going to say in defense of Mr. Feldman is that he's far from the first thing that the long and ignoble legacy of new metal has ruined. It has also caused severe to irreparable damage to Woodstock 99, <laughs> the pursuit of live musical performance in general thanks to the Family Values Tour, Mid-period Jay-Z, thanks to the Linkin Park collaboration collision course, which a geometry teacher bootlegged for me my sophomore year of high school, because that happened. Um, the aesthetic tastes of an entire generation of people who probably have kids now, and The Undertaker between the years of 2000 and 2004. Yet, the story around Feldman's song has become larger than the song itself ever, ever, has any reason to be. 
And a lot of it is me. When I Googled Corey Feldman go for it weeks ago, I wasn't given the mid-80s exercise tape you'd hope for with a search like that, but instead a YouTube video declaring Angelic 2, the core, the worst album of 2016. Twitter, as you can imagine, was rife with the worst kind of mouth breather, declaring that they'd rather die than ever hear Feldman sing again, a sacred pack that will go regrettably unkept. <laughs> and in response to that mild uproar, a series of concern, concerned think pieces sprouted up about the relative purposelessness of mocking anybody's art in any context ever, because having ideas means that they're inherently good and should be displayed openly on the show Matt Lauer's Polite Suits Bill. Now look, the internet can be venomous. Can be, is, and will continue to be until ex machina starts happening for real if it's not somewhere already. My day job partially involves moderating Facebook comments, so I myself start off a lot of days by rolling out of bed, enjoying a cup of coffee, and staring into the maw of man's final hideous evolution. And since the only true distinction between a cruel meme and an empowering one is the demographic that happens to discover it first, it's not hard in the slightest for somebody to pursue a sitting duck celebrity with all the nuance of a flailing would-be stand-up comedian calling his audience homos. If anything, it's an understood means of human communication at this point. But yet, there's something beneath Snoop Dogg being subbed out for Doc Ice during that live performance, and the dancing, and the weird sex contracts, and I'm sorry, I need to talk about the weird sex contract before we move on, because this was on Celebrity Wife Swap like a year ago, and none of you cared, but those women performing as his backing band are known as Corey's Angels. He lives with these girls under the auspices of a talent management company, and they clean his house and have to be, quote, coachable and teachable. He requests girls of all races and types of ethnicity. It might and probably is a sex cult. So, we've all made ridiculous and probably bad art before. Everyone has. It happens. Some write embarrassing fan fiction to play out their varied proclivities within their preferred medium. Some people start noise bands. George W. Bush paints away his sads. Me, I made rap music about girls who didn't like me that was destroyed by God when everyone's MySpace accounts were deleted. <laughs> Some make terrible art and succeed anyway, which is why anyone in this room might have any idea who Tommy Wiseau is. <laughs> the process of putting oneself into anything is a terrifying proposition, especially in the post-ironic world, where if you do, you risk finding yourself torn between the polar extremes of people who will tell you how, when, and why you should fucking die for having ever tried at all, and people who don't actually like what you're doing in the slightest, but will tell you they do because they're supposed to. One is obviously worse than the other, but I'll make the case for them as equally unhelpful. And again, most of us, when we make weird, bad art, don't display it on the Today Show. And granted, it's not even like Feldman's performance is the worst live performance in music anyone's ever had to endure, though it's up there, if only for Billy Bush's heroic attempts to politely usher him into a commercial break. <laughs> if anything, Feldman has done a service, 
searching for worst today show performances ever on Google will yield nothing but articles about Feldman's performance, meaning that he may well have struck from the record every other bad live musical performance in the show's 64 year history. <laughs> And it does take spine to lay yourself out in front of people. It does. And yeah, maybe he sucks because, you know, sucks concubines. But somebody can be bad at creation and still take a profound, edifying lesson away from it. And that's beautiful. And the trade-off for the rest of us out there is that art can also be shitty as long as we're not mean about it. We can chuckle at the absurdity of it as long as those don't become yowl, loud yowls of nihilistic laughter as they so often do. Your uncle can make bad dubstep in his basement. Your coworker can pressure everybody into subscribing to his podcast series about the history of currency. And by Christ, Corey Feldman can live out his rock star fantasies for a pair of very polite day show hosts. <laughs> because that is the America we all pay taxes into. And by the way, Feldman was recorded not too long after what you just saw, ripping through a cover of Pink Floyd's Money at the Lucky Strike Bowling Alley in Hollywood. So he's definitely the weird guy at the karaoke night, but he's probably having more fun than anyone else in the room ever has. He'll be him forever, the rest is up to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I say loud, loud yowls of nihilistic laughter is just my professional goal. <laughs> anyway, our next reader uh, up on the stage. He's a comedian who's performed uh, all over the place, hither and thither, uh, across the whole country even. Just goddamn all over. He's the uh, co-creator of the great stand-up showcase. Congrats on your successes, if I'm correct. Is that Uncharted Books up this very street the first Thursday of every month, which is to say tomorrow? Cool. Uh, you all, he is also a producer of Cole's Chicago Cabaret, which is just, just across the street. Uh, please welcome Bill Bullock. Hello. This microphone, this is awesome. I'm going to find my light because I'm a, a performer. Uh, hello. So I am a stand up comedian, but I wrote about police murder. Okay, so. <laughs> I'm angry, and this is not as funny as it should be, but remember, we're on the same side. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, on September 16, 2016, a man's car broke down on the street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The police drove up to this person who was in need, and instead of lending him a helping hand, they ended up shooting him dead in the street. The man's name was Terrence Crutcher. He was unarmed at the time, but that didn't stop the people representing the police in Tulsa and the lawyer representing the officer who actually shot him from presenting strange rationalizations about why the officer was within her rights to shoot down the man. So I don't want to talk about whether or not she actually was within her rights to shoot the man down, or whether or not she shot him because he happened to be a black person. I want to start by saying this. Cops need to lie better. <laughs> because their lies are insane and don't make any sense. And if you're gonna kill people who look like me just for looking like me, I would appreciate it if you had like a pretty good like lie about why you're doing it. <laughs> so 
the first lie that they always use, the first one they always use is, well, I felt unsafe. I felt that this person was going to do something that could hurt me. And I think you guys should understand that that shit is ridiculous. <laughs> like, cops don't show up alone anywhere when they're stopping somebody. There's at least three of you. There's at least five of you. You understand? Like, there's always backup. The weirdest part is she felt unsafe pulling up to a guy whose car had broken down. They weren't called there. They drove by him and then came back and was like, wait, why is this car just sitting here in the middle of the street? You understand? They have training. They have guns, for Christ's sake. They have guns and they use them all the time. You know what I mean? So the cops feeling unsafe when this unarmed man who was alone in the street with a broken down car is just utterly, utterly ridiculous. It makes no sense because he had his hands up in the air. How could he make you feel unsafe if he was literally doing the exact thing that you're supposed to do when the cops pull you over, when they hadn't even pulled him over? You didn't feel unsafe enough to need to shoot first and ask questions later, is what I'm trying to say. So the, video, the, the police actually released a video and the, and the video that had been released voluntarily, by the way, for transparency's sake, from a helicopter, a cop can be heard to say, that looks like a bad dude, too. And then he kind of laughs. This is a man in a helicopter. Which, first of all, why is there a helicopter there? <laughs> is there a drone strike on a terror? And there's a guy that broke his car broke down. And what kind of judgment was that to make about this dude from the helicopter, by the way? Like, what are you basing that on? Are you basing it on the fact that his car is running down? Are you basing it on literally anything other than the color of his skin? Because I can't imagine you can see or hear anything from your literal floating hovering platform of noise. <laughs> they said he looked like he was going to reach in his car and grab something. Good reason to preemptively shoot a person dead. Maybe, if that made any sense from the video that you actually released. The video seems to show that the driver's side window of his car was actually closed. So how were you unsafe about him re re reaching into his car? Was he going to hulk bust through the window and pull out a machine gun and kill all of you before you could react? Because that's literally the only way that that could happen. Then they said, <laughs> This is my favorite. Then they said he might have been high on PCP. <laughs> Which is just like, it's like hilarious. You know what I mean? It's like hilarious. Because this is a 40-year-old black man in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's not a lot of black, they're not, there's not a lot of black dudes doing PCP anywhere in the world. But like Tulsa, you guys ever been to Oklahoma, like in the west or the south? They're not doing a lot of like PC. Black dudes are not out here just like, I need to feel like a superhero. No! <laughs> they're not doing that. He might have had PCP in his car, but I guarantee you he wasn't taking it. He might have been selling PCP, but that's not only going to shoot you dead in the street and then ask whether he was on PCP later. Do you know what I mean? It's not a good, it's not a, that's a, that's a fucked up lie. It's unbelievable. It just doesn't make any sense. Then, 
wants every other stupid, bad liar rationale that they had that they had at all was exhausted. They came up with the dumbest lie of all. The dumbest one. Not my favorite, but the, definitely the dumbest one. They said that the officer in question shot him to death because she couldn't distinguish between her taser and her firearm. So she meant to tase him to death, but instead she shot him to death. This is a trained police officer. They have to be certified in firearms. And if they can't tell the difference, like tasers are made to look different, be lighter, feel different. If this person can't tell the difference between a taser and a firearm, that's just as big a reason she shouldn't be a cop as if she murdered someone dead in the streets for no reason. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't make any fucking sense, and I think that we should probably talk about that. Like, why aren't we talking about the fact that police no longer do their jobs? They literally all say, we protect and serve. But like, who were they protecting that day? This man was alone, no one had called them, his car broke down. And instead of serving him, by, protect, by protecting or serving him, they shot him down in the street. For no reason. I was, um, okay, and here's the part where this stops being so like aggressive. Uh, <laughs> I was, I, no one, here's the thing. The thing about this that I really fucking want to stress is that like, we should talk about it. Not me, we should. Because it's not like any of us really feels like super comfortable when the cops are around. It's not just black people who feel uncomfortable when the cops are around. Nobody likes it when the cops are around. If you've ever driven a car and you see cops behind you, you get uncomfortable. Even if you're driving the speed limit, it makes no sense. That means something's fucking wrong, man. Like, why are we talking about that? Thank you. I wasn't looking for a pause break, but it gives me a nice pause to look at what I wrote. Okay. No, but seriously, no one wants to see the cops. One time, my friend's car broke down across the street from my house, which was directly in front of a police station, and he didn't call the cops. No, 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 no. He called me, and then we both went outside where I finally saw that the wheel on his front driver's side had fallen the fuck off of his car. <laughs> and we were sitting in front of a police station, and multiple police cars drove right by us and did not stop while we both went, what the fuck do we do about this? And we were relieved that they didn't stop. So what I'm trying to say is this, like, do you guys like it when the cops come? No, you don't. If you're mugged, are you excited to see the cops? No, because A, you're angry, it hurt, and it's too late. They, get, they got there too fucking late. Are you happy when the cops come and bust up your fucking party because your uppity neighbor who's too lazy to actually like go do anything with his life besides watch Netflix until he dies calls the cops? No, no one likes the cops ever. And fuck your uncle, fuck your cousin, fuck your brother, or whoever the fuck else you know who's a cop, because you don't like it when he shows up either in his job. <laughs> because when your fucking uncle or your brother or your cousin show up, it's because they're fucking angry at you because they have to save you from a thing that you thought you were going to get away from because your uncle or your brother or your cousin is a fucking cop. That's the only reason why you want your uncle or your brother or your cousin to come. So don't tell me you're excited to see the cops. No one is. And we should fucking talk about that. So I was across the street at Kohl's one time with my girlfriend and my girlfriend's sister. And they're like really, really close friends. And I happened
had to drive to the bar even though we only lived like five blocks away at the time because I had my car that day. Uh, and so I parked in front of the bar, we drank, we had a great time, and then I got in the car, probably too drunk to drive, which like, but I had my car, what am I gonna do, leave it on the meter and get a ticket? No, fuck that. So I'm sitting in the car, I'm about to drive away, and we don't even get a full block up to California before I see rollers, and I'm like, ah, shit. Well, and I look at, and they're both in the back seat because they like each other that much. Neither of them wants to sit next to me, they'd rather sit next to each other. <laughs> and I said, ladies, I might be going to jail tonight. Make sure you get the car home. <laughs> and the cop rolls up to the window, taps on the glass with his flashlight, and I roll it down, the legal amount that I have to. <laughs> and I say, hello, officer, what seems to be the problem, drunk? And he goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm like, okay, ladies, I'm going to tell you to take the car home. And I said, he's already working from the script. So I say, hello, officer, what seems to be problem tonight? And he goes, you don't have your motherfucking headlights on. What the fuck is wrong with you? And he was right. I didn't have my headlights on because I was forgotten. And so I said, I'm sorry, officer. I just forgot. It's a very bright city. I didn't even think that it didn't occur to me that I didn't have them on. A drunk answer, but a true answer. And he said, and I quote, oh, it's a bright city. And he flashed his flashlight right in my face. And I was like, fuck, I'm definitely gonna die tonight over headlights. That's fucked up. That's how I'm gonna go. I'm gonna get popped over headlights. And he goes, so is this too bright for you? Is this too bright for you? And then he scans in my car like he's looking for something and finds two white women in the back seat. Chilling. <laughs> and his whole timbre changes. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were trying to get these ladies home. You know what? Put your headlights on and show me that they work. And then I'll let you get on your way. And I was like, why am I not dead? What's happening? I thought about that dude for three solid weeks, at which point I realized he thought I was a fucking Uber driver. And that's the only reason I'm alive today, guys. I do drive Uber sometimes. And, uh, no, I won't get into that story. It's about bros and feminism, which we're not talking about right now, but that's cool. Okay, that's been my time. My name is Bill. Well, moving, moving right on then. We got a fourth. Yeah, what am I going to say? Like, I, I'm from the suburbs. Nothing. Coming up next to the old off-ed stage, we got a, the host of the Weird Books podcast, Home Foolery, which I recommend you all check out because it's real funny. Uh, his solo, solo show in Falsitas Veritas uh, is going to be every Thursday in October. Uh, where at? And under the Gun Theater. Um, and also, in November, he'll be debuting his play Star-Spangled Sitcoms, which are Cheers and Frasier set in the American Revolution. Everybody, please welcome Cody Melcher. going to go for the light because I did not wear this goddamn necklace to stand in the shadows. <laughs> okay, and I broke the light stand. Guys, I hulked out accidentally. I'm going to just move this one. It's 
dance partner. Guys, good thing this is good. Good visuals for the podcast. Yeah. There, we good? All right, look. We made it. We made it through. America. I'm very tall. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Sure. All right. It's leaning towards me, but fine. You can hear me. It's working. Quote. Also, this whole thing is super weird and crazy. It's certainly possible that someone who knew Capote bought the ashes, but the idea that some anonymous stranger owns the remains of a famous person and paid a substantial amount of money for them is, once again, super weird and crazy. Do you put them on display? Do you travel the world and carry them with you? Do you do something to some third thing that we don't even want to think of because it's too upsetting? These Capote ashes were actually a part of the guy, so even a joke about doing something funny with them seems a little crass. That was the report written for the AV Club about the auction of author Truman Capote's ashes. Yes, ashes. And ignoring the fact that the writer of the article makes a joke about doing something funny with the ashes, then immediately calls out people for making jokes about doing something funny with the ashes, <laughs> this article is just a snapshot of the journalistic sentiment which seemed to be hovering above the entire auction. So backstory. Uh, on August 25th, 1984, after a roller coaster ride of declining health and Oscar Wilde squared shenanigans, Truman Capote, author of In Cold Blood, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and more, died in the Bel Air home of Joanne Carson, the ex-wife of Johnny Carson. I know it's the sort of thing that you can only write about in the era in which Hollywood Squares was still on the air. Gordon Dahl called Capote's death a wise career move. <laughs> Fast forward to May 8th, 2015, when Joanne Carson herself passed away after a run of declining health. Much of Carson's estate went to the auction house Julian's, including many of Capote's belongings which had been left in her house, and, of course, half of his ashes in a small wooden box. The story was that his ashes had been split between Joanne Carson and Capote's partner, Jack Dunphy. Dunphy claims he received the totality of the ashes and scattered them all, but, as is the case in Liberty Balance, Truman Capote, and Hollywood, when the legend becomes fact, Print the legend. And so, the small box containing half of Truman Capote's ashes went up on the auction block with a starting bid of $2,000 and an estimate of four dollars to $6,000. The media circus began. Articles from The Guardian to CNN to Vanity Fair started popping up, and while many of them took the stance of curious passers-by, an odd narrative began to form the process. The headline for the, fan, uh, for the Vanity Fair article is, The Man Auctioning Off Truman Capote's Ashes Explains Himself. Town and Country describes the ethics of selling human remains. The tone of articles started becoming, if not passive-aggressive, outright preachy. Journalists, normally unwilling to take a moral stand when it comes to the important things like police shootings or presidential elections, found a comfortable circus freak with which they could get everyone on board. The articles from, and the comments below began to take on a patina of righteousness and even worse, moral rigidity. The same sort of moral rigidity which leads to fun things like racism, bullying, and witch trials. I especially took much of this to heart. Why, Cody, why? I can hear you screaming loudly at me as if it wasn't obvious. All the time, at the time of the publishing of the Atlantic's article about the auction, I was the current high bidder for Truman Capote's ashes. Many of my friends were incredibly supportive, some of them a little too supportive, and some of them started regurgitating the rigid lines of universal morality. To me, personally, the question of morality had not really come up. For several reasons. Uh, the selling of human remains is not new, even in modern society. Many of them are for scientific reasons, but yet again, this is an area where American society tends to give more leeway to the maths and sciences on cultural oddity than it's willing to give to the arts. 
The idea of having a skeleton in a medical classroom so students can look at what a real skeleton looks like, even though the ability to reproduce a fake is definitely not impossible, takes societal and cultural priority over a gay writer from Texas with an addictive personality wanting to feel connected to another gay writer from Texas with an addictive personality. <laughs> the concrete tops the ephemeral in modern American society, and we have nothing but the Vanderbilts to blame. In a modern society where the phrase friends of the family you choose is bandied about like an October, October cold bug in Chicago, we seem to stop the line when it gets spooky-ooky. We all know people who have the ashes of family members in their homes. I myself have my childhood dogs, collars, and ashes in my apartment. Are we all Victorian Gothic monsters set upon the pure and simple morals of this burgeoning metropolis, tearing at the sulken garter of its chastity? <laughs> immorality is, uh, immorality, what is wrong, is simply what is just on the other side of the line. There are some aspects of morality which we have agreed upon as a society. Murder is wrong. Well, for some of us, unless they've committed a crime worthy of it. Uh, for some of us, uh, unless they are aiding a person and going uh, quietly in pain. Uh, for some of us, the definition of murder isn't even agreed upon. Fine, okay, we'll, we'll bring it back to something a little more easy. Uh, stealing is wrong. Well, for some of us, if your family is starving and you need food, or for some of us, if you're stealing back what is rightfully yours, or for some of us, if you're stealing oil from other countries, uh, Jewish people think a sky man creating the world is solid, but having a son who comes back to life is a bit far. <laughs> Evangelicals are fine with the son thing, but the Catholic idea of worshiping his mother is way too much. <laughs> Catholics are down for the mom, but if you move the whole thing to Jefferson County, Missouri, then everyone's all upset. <laughs> But we can all agree that Jehovah's Witnesses are weird. <laughs> Took a weird turn there. All right. The auction for Truman Capote's ashes was happening over the period of a few days and ended while I was on vacation. Uh, since it's me, I obviously was on a vacation through Virginia to visit important sites of the American Enlightenment. Uh, I received my outbid notice while standing on the lawn of Mount Vernon, the home of George Washington. The price was past $10,000 and was going way too high for me to even pretend I could keep going in the bidding. So I sighed and continued on my tour down to the crypt of George and Martha Washington. As I walked past the sign saying, please be quiet out of respect for those interred here, I watched a child run around one of the obelisks in front of the tomb as if it were a maypole. Another family was posting in front of the, uh, posing in front of the open doors of the crypt, smiling wide as their father took their picture in front of the caskets of the first president and first lady of the United States of America. A Danish couple was arguing about where to get lunch just to their left, and a teenager had his own head buried in a game on his phone. Our society has a weird way of dealing with death. We like to pretend that it's this austere thing that we both respect and fear. When a person dies, you shouldn't speak ill of them, but if they're the former princess of Wales, you better get as many cameras there as possible. We must respect more than the dead until enough time passes that we can catch Pokemon on the plaque listing their accomplishments. You should only own the ashes of the people who had a personal effect on your life because the concept of humanity and what affects and changes and grows and evolves a person's soul is something so concrete and scientific that we can legislate it in the cultural zeitgeist. We've created a celebrity culture where you can, right now, tweet at most of your favorite authors, actors, writers, chefs, presidents. You can be a part of their lives, feel like you know them. YouTube culture is built almost entirely around the give and take of modern internet celebrity. You can be their friend, you can Snapchat them, you can talk to them after shows, you can be their friend on Facebook, they can inspire you to greatness, to inner and personal truth, but don't go too far. Mind the line. German Capote's ashes ended up going for almost $45,000.
There are pages and pages of Google results for his ashes. Even without my personal involvement, I saw articles about the auction pop up all over the internet. Anyone who knows anything about Truman Capote, a man whose dying wishes were to have a new book, a new massive party, and a new shot at the talk show circuit, can only imagine that Truman Capote would be overjoyed that the mere concept of an auction of his ashes 30 years after his death had stirred up so much media coverage. <laughs> Truman was a writer, a man, a character who danced through society and culture. Before this auction, or before this piece on this auction, when was the last time you really thought about Truman Capote? Honestly. It may be morbid, it may be macabre, but isn't what we all want in one way or another to be remembered, to be thought about, to be considered and wanted? On different scales and levels of intimacy, of course, but the universality of this story is not the morality of it, but the humanity. Truman had said to Joanne Carson that he didn't want his ashes to sit on the shelf. And the winner of the auction, who remained anonymous, promised that they would fulfill that wish. And so Truman gets to go to the very adventures denied to him by his young death. There's a beauty in that. A sort of life after death, both physically in his ensuing journeys, and spiritually in the very words and thoughts in this room right now. I know I will always think of Truman Capote and the effects his words and life had on me especially when I look down at his cufflinks that I totally won in that same auction. Thank you. I remember when the, that whole saga started breaking on Facebook and I saw your post about uh, how you were fitting on Capote's ashes and I'm just like, this is, this is as on brand as it's gonna get. <laughs> Anyway, our final op-ed reader uh, is a comedian, musician, and storyteller, vaudevillian, all sorts of words. Um, she teaches at the Old Town School of Folk Music. She was recently at the Minneapolis Fringe. That, okay, I got to remember. Uh, where she performed as her character, Plucky Rosenthal. Uh, she's great. Everybody, Elisa Rosenthal. also opting for good light, Mike. <laughs> okay, so I know there's a lot of big stuff going on in the world right now, and September 2016 was a hugely significant month, but really all I want to talk about is how RuPaul won an Emmy! <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. Good. Uh, RuPaul, you better work! Cover girl! RuPaul from the Brady Bunch movie! RuPaul, who made a black exploitation porn parody in the 80s called Star Booty, stars filled with two R's. RuPaul is the supermodel of the world. RuPaul's Drag Race, in addition to being the best show on television, has been airing since 2009 on Logo TV, the first advertiser-supported commercial television channel geared towards the LGBT, LGBT community, uh, which launched in 2005. The month Drag Race premiered was my first winter post-college, and I was living with my parents. They went to bed early, and I stayed up late because, oh my god, cable is amazing! <laughs> I discovered a gay cable channel showing the first episode of a new show about drag queens, and the rest is history. Uh, by Ryan Plus, who's seen RuPaul's Drag Race. How dumb is that thing with a door? Didn't you just want to slap her and be like, you signed on for this? Yeah. Right, we'll talk. 
Um, but for those not in the know, RuPaul's Drag Race is one part parody reality show, one part homage reality show, and one part actual reality show. The format is based primarily on skill-based shows like America's Next Top Model and Project Runway, complete with ridiculous mini-challenges and catty drama and runway critiques. Part of what takes it into the next realm of reality TV entertainment is how RuPaul seamlessly goes from playing a tin gun type out of drag to give critiques as the queens get ready for the runway to a Tyra Banks type in drag, the game show host who takes no shit on the runway. Mix in the skills of makeup, improvisation, costuming, and tucking your penis into your butt, and now, <laughs> you're welcome, now you understand why this is the best show on television. On September 18, 2016, RuPaul Charles won the Primetime Creative Emmy Award for Outstanding Host of a Reality, uh, for a Reality or Reality Competition Program, beating out Ryan Seacrest, Tom Bergeron, Jane Lynch, Steve Harvey, and Heidi Klum, and Tim Gunn. I mean, I remember when we were all up in arms that there even was a reality TV category included in the Emmys, right guys? It was, right, everyone cared about this as much as I did. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure this category exists just for RuPaul to subvert it. When I found out the news that RuPaul won an Emmy, I was on a family vacation to Italy with my mom and my brother. I excitedly went on and on about the significance of a marginal avant-garde show infiltrating the mainstream, to which my brother responded, who's RuPaul? <laughs> I know, I get it. To me, RuPaul is supermodel of the world, an amazing businessman who created not just a career out of what used to be, and in some places still is, the underground art of drag, but has also created and built up an entire culture, giving other drag queens an opportunity to work. RuPaul has hosted his own talk shows, released 10 studio albums. <laughs> that number was significantly higher than I thought it was going to be. Uh, has a podcast with Drag Race co-host Visage, is now in the third year of running a drag convention called DragCon. It's coming up in April. I've never been. Talk to me afterwards if you want to go. I think it's expensive. We can work it out. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, oh, you can Katya. <laughs> And this past April, he started hosting a new trivia TV show called Gay for Play. RuPaul, which is his real birth name, is not only crushing the game, uh, some would argue he made the game. The thing that fascinates me about RuPaul is that business mind. How he's able to not just survive, but flourish and thrive with each passing year. He's like David Bowie in that way, able to adapt, regenerate, grow, while still keeping one thumb on what the culture is into and wants to see, while the other thumb makes sure that has to do with what he's selling. RuPaul famously was proud of not being recognized by the Emmys year after year, trying to keep the underground underground and the weird weird, and what even are awards? Amy Poehler talks about it as the pudding. That doesn't mean anything, but you find yourself wanting the pudding. And RuPaul has said, I'd rather have an enema than an Emmy. But this is certainly a more mainstream recognition of a niche show on a niche channel. And what does that recognition mean? We have gay stories increasingly more in the limelight, and gay stories of people of color as well. The people on the American fringe fighting for self-expression the people who in 1969 were demonstrating and fighting in the Stonewall riots. And this pain is still felt today in modern homophobia and transphobia. And I recognize that a silly award, the Emmys are probably one of the least significant of the industry awards. 
doesn't carry the same weight that legislation does, but it does show that our media is recognizing more stories, our very media that it once shapes culture and is also shaped by it. A man in a dress is becoming less the butt of the joke and more the butt we all want to be. <laughs> but the significance runs both ways. On the positive side, it's beyond moving and amazing that this show is successful in starting discussions and getting awards and making jobs for drag queens and increasing bar sales on Thursday nights. But on the flip side, what does it mean when the marginalized goes mainstream? There's a YouTube series called RuPaul Drives. I know, does he ever sleep? <laughs> Where he drives people around and has conversations with them. Say goodbye to the rest of your night because that's the rabbit hole you're going down with. <laughs> In conversation with John Waters, the king of the avant-garde low camp disgusting underground, um, they discussed the following, which I transcribed for you. RuPaul, that's why camp and that's why the irreverent is so much fun because we're, we've recognized the pattern and now we're ready to play outside and around and have a twist on phrases with the patterns. John Waters. And I think now that we're both lucky, the public gets it a lot more. RuPaul, the irreverent behavior bohemian, it sort of became the popular culture. John Waters. Well, it's now everyone wants to be an outsider. When we were young, nobody wanted to be, but now, you and I, we should be insiders. That's more perverted. <laughs> in a way, we are, so in a way, that's the ultimate revenge. <laughs> what a gem. And I think that's it. That's what's truly at the heart of RuPaul's historic Emmy win. It's what made me cry over my pasta and Prosecco in Rome. That RuPaul and the team he's wisely surrounded himself with can do some pretty amazing things from the inside. I can't wait to see what's next. Maybe drag queens? Seriously, where are the drag kings? Not queens, kings. Okay, upon winning his Emmy, RuPaul said, I know I said I'd rather have an enema than an Emmy, but thanks to the Television Academy, I can have both! Thank you for being the president. It's standing up straight-ish, right? Yeah, we're good. Um, no, oh, no, no, we're not good. Switch that. We need to because the debate, Carl. Yes, as as <laughs> as a. Uh, and Carl has delightfully segued us into it's now time to skewer debate. The part of the show where there's two people. The reason why there's two of these. Yeah, thank you. The reason why there's two of these microphones. Perfect time to call out Cafe Mustache. What a fantastic venue. Please give them the money. But anyway, skewer debate, we have two people come up, they read uh, prepared statements and also have to answer questions on the fly that I ask them. It is up to you all to decide the winner. I'm just going to bring our, our debaters up to the stage. The first is a cast member of uh, The Cates, which is an amazing uh, all-female comedy troupe around the city. They do tons of shows that are great. Uh, a founding writer at Trinkers with Writing Problems, and also the founder of the Windy City Rollers, an all-female roller derby league. Everybody, Elizabeth Gomez. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> Our next debater, number two. 
she's a Second City alum and a former high school speech team participant. You can see her improv every Saturday at 10 at the Comedy Clubhouse with Team Confide in Poseidon. Uh, and she's also around Chicago at venues like Lady Bits as part of the independent team Alex, Pat, and Ken. Uh, Roxanne West. She needs to set up some sound, some sound nonsense right now, but uh, this is the perfect time to just discuss what are we even debating? What's this about? And I'll tell you. So in this election season, we face a horrific potentiality that Donald Trump could be our president, and there is a empty seat on the Supreme Court. It follows who then would Trump put on the Supreme Court. He has put forward uh, that he thinks Peter Thiel, a weird billionaire who wants to replace his blood with young people's blood, a real thing, uh, would be a good Supreme Court justice. But what I want to say is who, who, who would be just the supreme Supreme Court justice nominee that would really embody Trump's values and make sure his legacy lasts forever on the high court? So, uh, Elizabeth, what are you debating for? A real vampire. <laughs> Roxanne, who do you think should be Trump's Supreme Court nominee? The entire Spanish Inquisition somehow. <laughs> 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 Both very apt candidates. It's up to you. You can only pick one. It's going to be up to you to decide. So the way this works, our uh, debaters are both going to give three-ish minutes of opening statements. I'm going to ask them questions. They're going to give closing statements. Then you vote. So you know... Elizabeth, why don't you just go ahead and go first? Thank you, Tom, the audience of the Skewer, and malignant spirits everywhere for having me here tonight. <laughs> as we are looking forward to great America, I mean, um, as forward to looking at uh, making America great. We must admit to ourselves that the days of compassion and empathy and logical thinking are days long gone. <laughs> it is exciting that finally in America we have a leader in Donald Trump who looks back at our history to find tools to make sure that we all get in line. Things like fear, glamoring, and blood-sucking tyranny. <laughs> Today, my friends, we are here to question who will fill the seat of Justice Scalia, a proud goblin spirit that we have party. <laughs> Today, friends, I would suggest that we look upon someone who reflects his values, Trump's values, and therefore, America's values. <laughs> Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> is a man with a reputation of being a person of commitment and conviction. He has served in the military for at least 550-odd thousand years. He has built many walls, albeit mostly made from the bodies of his enemies, but undoubtedly preventing his neighbors from the south to curbing their dogs on his lawn. Vlad, or Dracula, as his friends like to call him, 
is a family man with strong values and intelligence, which is a trait that he passes on to generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. You guys get it. <laughs> he has fathered many great leaders like Vampire Bill, <laughs> the Count from Sesame Street, <laughs> and Ted Cruz. Vlad <laughs> has tirelessly fought to overturn Roe versus Wade because living babies are much more valuable in our society and much more flavorful <laughs> than the dead ones, especially if they're farm-raised and gluten-free. <laughs> As a vampire, he has amassed great wealth over the centuries and is a true one percenter, which means he has a special insight into the suffering of the poor and wants nothing to do with that. <laughs> Not only will he protect blood, blood, blood banks all over a great nation, he will also support the rights of 24-hour casinos because that's where he launders his money and frankly, it's the only place he can hang out after work. Vlad the Impaler, the more of an impaling crucifixion kind of guy, does support our right to the Second Amendment. He would ensure that Americans have the right to bear arms, and he strongly believes that Americans should always, always carry a gun, especially with silver bullets, because he fucking hates werewolves. <laughs> For all of those opposed to Obamacare, rest assured that Vampire Vlad would be the first to make sure that it goes away, because if that's what you want, my army of dark... Any friends? Um, <laughs> he's an incubus that can live forever, so he doesn't give a shit about free flu shots. <laughs> Friends, demons, and fiends, I stand before you today to tell you that I will prove to you tonight that there is no one more qualified than Vlad the Impaler to be our next Supreme Court judicial nominee based on his experience and hatred for foreigners. Thank you. Hi everybody, how are you? Good. All right. All right, so the bench for Donald Trump's potential Supreme Court nominee is deep and impressive. My opponent believes that he will choose a fictional character. And why not? All my personal heroes, the women who inspire me most, are fictional. Like a world-class puzzle maker and brilliant mind, motivated by her devotion to marriage and family. Just a second. Yes. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Full screen. There you go. Yeah. Do it. Do it. It's, it's going. Oh, 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 oh. oh, 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 oh. Amy, <laughs> I thought she was saying with this. Our self-starter who overcame personal tragedy to create her own unorthodox opportunities for success by collaborating with so-called deplorables and authoring a smash hit book series. Catherine from Basic Instinct. <laughs> or a woman of faith devoted to her leader and their vision for a better world who also had quite a flair for showmanship in a good old makeover sequence. Zool from Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> McDonald Trump's now going to 
nominate, nominate them, obviously. The stool's too fat. <laughs> now, this is really actually happening in our world, folks. It's actually real. So, I would better for Donald Trump to nominate than an atrocity that actually happened. The Spanish Inquisition. Alright, so I know, I know you're thinking, yikes! People actually died and were tortured and murdered during the Spanish Inquisition. And I mean, that's definitely going to happen under a Trump presidency, which is a step up from just more, just more likely. Um, but uh, where in the Spanish Inquisition are the laughs? All right, so the peanut butter <laughs> to our imminent bloody jelly that makes this campaign such a particularly unique joy. Well, actually, turns out the Spanish people between 1480 and 1834 also loved razzing the authorities responsible for the uptick and death and persecution going on in their homeland, just like us. <laughs> <laughs> we just don't get their sense of humor due to our modern sensibilities. It's like that Billy Goat SNL sketch that somehow is still the cornerstone of that place's branding. <laughs> so, I mean, nobody really cares about that sketch anymore except for, like a bunch of nerds. And they've already got everything that a restaurant needs. A burger with way too much bread. And the legacy for being why my grandpa died before seeing a Cubs championship in his lifetime. You got enough, Billy Goat. <laughs> uh, but I digress. Uh, to try and capture what made the Spanish Inquisition so special to its people, I'm going to list facts about it in a way to capture the feeling of the time, which is so much like ours, to prove the Spanish Inquisition is the only logical and emotional choice for Donald Trump's Supreme Court nomination. elaborate situation. All right. All right. All right. So, the origins of the Spanish Inquisition stem from a concern that Jewish and Muslim converts to the Catholic faith were secretly unloyal and would not adhere to Catholic law. The sound effect was supposed to be Jim Carrey saying, somebody stop me. Jewish and Muslim citizens convert or leave Spain their home. And then the sound effect that was supposed to play was the smoking from the <laughs> Jewish mass. <laughs> Lasting almost 400 years, over 150,000 people would be charged with crimes against Spain, and at least 3,000 would be executed. Again, somebody stop me. <laughs> Crimes included, but were not limited to, witchcraft, a.k.a. being a woman, right? Uh, being Jewish, Muslim, or a Protestant, committing sodomy, somebody stop me, uh, <laughs> marrying after a non-church-approved divorce, which was pretty much impossible to get at the time, uh, suggesting that sex between unmarried people might not be a sin, 
having sex outside of marriage, and uh, you know, all sorts of other really fun stuff that we already do in our day-to-day life. Again, somebody stop me. <laughs> Alright, so torture was considered too cruel for a punishment, so it was merely used to induce confessions from traitors to the Catholic Spanish way of life. Smoking. <laughs> These included the rack, waterboarding, being hung by the wrists or ankles, and starvation. If found guilty beyond reproach, people were burned at the stake. If an accused heretic died before their final sentencing, like accidentally being killed during an informational session with the Inquisitors, well, we haven't we all been there. <laughs> they had their corpses or bones dug up, burned, and cast out, just to let everyone know how much they really sucked. <laughs> all right. And if you're having trouble wrapping your mind around what happened back then, just pretend it's you know your mother or your friend or a sufficiently complacent athlete on a sports team you like. So, all right. So, culture and enlightenment came to a halt. A Spanish citizen, citizen in exile at the time, was quoted as saying, "Our country is a land of barbarism. Down there, one cannot produce any culture without being suspected of heresy." error, and Judaism. Thus silence was imposed on the learned. Somebody stop me. Jim Carrey mask. <laughs> Well-organized, efficient, state-supported death and destruction. A country associated with the worst impulses and calculations in humankind. A lot of laughs. Donald Trump's Supreme Court nomination. Thank you. There's some delightful opening arguments from both of you, but now, now it's time you got to break away from the prepared and answer my crazy questions that make very little sense. Elizabeth, first. Tom, I'd like to point out that vampires never have technical difficulties. Give me a response for that sick burn. It's because we're thinking of new, weird, freaky ways to kill people, so you could kill someone by just putting your teeth in them, or you could just... You know, hang them by their wrists and use... Have you not watched True Blood? Have you not watched it? No, I am not a sinner, which is why... <laughs> <laughs> I am a death for Mr. Donald Trump. Okay, first question, Elizabeth. Trump, he's all about vanity. He's a narcissist. He loves himself. Here's the issue, though. Vampires can't use mirrors. How are they going to... Uh, sync up with his beliefs that they are sharing that crucial, if they're missing that crucial shared experience? Uh, that's a very good question. Thank you for asking. Uh, first, I'd like to point out that Spaniards are just one step away from Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> what? Actually, they, they killed a bunch of Mexicans, so. <laughs> <laughs> On that same tack, uh, uh, Roxanne, that's, she makes a good point. When Trump hears the Spanish Inquisition talking Spanish, he's immediately going to assume they're Mexican. That's just, that's fact. We know that. I, I, he does not know that people outside of Mexico speak Spanish. Uh, what's to keep him from when that happens? What's to keep him from immediately calling the deportation forces on his new Supreme Court justice? Well, thank you, Tom. 
I think with any, you know, new step in his, you know, in his government, in his presidency, they'll do whatever they would do normally when he's upset by literally anything that's going on in his life. Just take him to a back room, pump a bunch of lard into him, <laughs> rub his belly until he falls asleep, fat and happy. <laughs> So, so, a, so a lard injection based strategy then? Yes, Tom. <laughs> It'll be a way to placate him for any number of the problems that he'll be having with literally anything that happens or goes wrong. He gets a hangnail, lard. <laughs> he sees it on the street, he's like, oh, I don't like that face, lard. <laughs> Except that he wouldn't like lard because it's Mexican. Oh. Like Donald Trump would actually know that. <laughs> I think what his real strategy would be is to hire the Chinese and then make them fun, make fun of them. <laughs> Elizabeth, I gotta ask, Supreme Court nominees generally uh, have to require a background in law, criminal justice, they gotta be tough on crime. How do you square that with the fact that vampires are famously pro-blood theft? <laughs> I would like to point out that Vlad the Impaler was a military general. I'd also like to point out that you can't fit the whole Spanish Inquisition onto the bench. That is an excellent question. Roxanne, how do you square the fact that the Spanish Inquisition is uh, more than one person, not an American citizen, and from the past? <laughs> <laughs> Like any two great politicians, we have more in common that than we have that are dissimilar. We're both from the past. <laughs> you can put the whole Spanish Inquisition on one bench. Absolutely, they would sit all together. One time, I went to IKEA. I had a really small car, and you know what? I made it work. I got a, I got a queen size bed, a couple of lamps, and a bag full of knickknacks home, and it was fine. And I've got noodles for arms. So who's to say Donald Trump can't wedge a whole bunch of real mean Spaniards into that one chair? Not Spaniards, Mexicans. No, there's this in their name. There's Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> And again, I'd like to highlight the Spaniards did brutalize and murder the people of Mexico. <laughs> Aren't you loving this fun comedy show where you get reminded about Spanish killing people two times? Here's one, one last question that I would like you both to answer. If your, uh, if your candidate was to be named Supreme Court Justice uh, for Donald Trump's administration, what would be like their signature decision? The decision they made that would make them live forever in American history. What would they do? Uh, that's a great question, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> Their signature move would be a revitalizing of what made Europe great. A lot of persecution and death. <laughs> Murder, torture. They're going to run rampant through the United States. Not like it isn't already a great time now. <laughs> but they're going to take it to a whole new level. A level Donald Trump can only dream of in his large field dreams. <laughs> the undead will be proud to have jazz in all of the houses because they love to dance. They love to 
Yes! And not only that, there'll be free chalupas at every high school. Thank you. And nap time will be customary, as is the siesta, a part of the Spanish culture. So, hope you like naps, millennials. <laughs> naps are already customary with vampires during the day. True. Donald Trump favors businesses. How are small businesses going to be served by someone who's going to be sleeping during their business hours when they need business help? Look at me. I am changing your thoughts. <laughs> All of your thoughts are wrong. All of them are to make a wisdom save. It's garlic and a state to the heart. Okay, let's just, let's just, this, this part's over. <laughs> Roxanne, how about, you, how about you let fly some of them closing statements? We're in a really scary time right now. Um, just being really brutally honest and putting it out there. Um, sometimes it feels like we joke and we try to make light or we try to understand or put our mind around what's going on right now and yet it keeps on happening. The Spanish Inquisition was about 400 years of brutality and sadness and this is a comedy show, my bad guys. <laughs> uh, and I think that would be a great fit for what we're already heading to right now, to look to the past and realize what happened before and what we can try to prevent now. And also nap times would be great. Thanks, guys. I'm going to keep my closing arguments short because I think I've proven my point. I mean, obviously, we're smarter. We're not half Mexicans. <laughs> and, and it's my turn. It's my turn. <laughs> I've been here for centuries. It is my turn. And I do think that in order to make America great again, we have to think about draconian, dramatic changes. <laughs> and I'd like to leave you with one final thought. I'd like to leave you with a quote from Donald Trump. Sniff, sniff, snort, snort, sniff. <coughs> Thank you. This is now the time of great decision. The winner will be decided. And it will be given this delightful prize. It's the, it's the skewer. No! Oh my god! <laughs> Let the record show for the podcast, Elizabeth, bedecked as vampire, fled. like to remind the audience that the Spanish Inquisition is not afraid of wood. In fact, we implemented it in many of our torture devices. <laughs> okay, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and this is our prize. You might be saying, Tom, this looks like actual garbage. No, I wrote the word skewer on it. It was really hard. I'm not going to do it next time. <laughs> so the way this is going to work is, uh, Dom, why don't you just be our impartial judge? You're going to decide who gets the louder applause. I'm going to ask both of you or not both of you. I'm going to ask you, the audience, which of these two you thought won the debate. 
Um, for the person you thought lost, you still clap, you just clap softer, because it's sad to see no clapping. Anyway, so, who among you believes that the absent Elizabeth Gomez was the victor in this debate? You got that? Yes, I do. Cool. Who among you believes that Roxanne West was the victor in this debate? <laughs> Who gets it? I think it's the Inquisition. The Inquisition. Roxanne West is the victor. Final things. Skewers, of course, monthly show with the first Wednesday of every month, so the next one's going to be November 2nd. Uh, and we have the donation bucket. You might have passed on your way. You can throw five bucks in. We give it to the writers. That's what we. I don't, I don't have any overhead. We, I just pay the people for writing the good thing you like. Uh, and to move on to, to the real thing at the end. So when we started the show 12 months ago, I was not alone as I am now, cold and scared. <laughs> Overworked and windswept, really. Uh, I had I had a co-conspirator Eric Ruel, who uh, Kevin did he prepare any sort of fun things? Just just put it in the thing. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. why I didn't do it. Did he prepare any sort of fun things for us? You know, maybe like a maybe like a video from from his from his location. I he might have. He might have. Whoa! Oh, oh, oh. oh that's nice. Real nice. Why don't you just let that rip? Good evening, skewerers. Uh, my name is Eric Ruel, co-founder and former host of The Skewer. If you didn't know, I'm in Detroit now working on the first ever skewer investigative journalism piece on the canine uprising in the inner city. I'm finding the job to be pretty rough. Now, if you ever wonder what it's like to live in Detroit, just imagine Chicago. You know, the good theater scene, the disappointing sports teams, the amazing food, the grotesque displays of gentrification. Now, picture all the skyscrapers having been built before the Great Depression. These brittle brick buildings bending like branches in a gust storm fit to snap, and take away any semblance of usable public transportation. <laughs> the Motor City brought America the automobile. Everywhere except here in Detroit, it seems. I haven't seen a car driving around here that's been made after 2004, I swear. Otherwise, Detroit is exactly like Chicago. Sands the skewer and piss-soaked red light trains. As an absent father to the skewer, it is my pleasure to stop by unannounced and wish the little guy a happy birthday. But also, collect on the four months of royalty checks that I haven't received. When Tom and I started this project before it had a name and cafe mustache to call home, it really came down to the question of how do we get a network of young, talented people on stage? And so far, I think we've done that. 
we're fortunate to have launched the careers of many notable Chicago writers, and for which we take 100% of the credit. <laughs> writers like Tim Barnes, Erica Price, Dave Eggers, and many, many others. <laughs> you see, the skewer is unlike any other live literature event in the city. Why no one has decided to do satirical op-eds about the news prior to or since is beyond me. And what people do on their off weeks? Go see poetry slams at the Green Mill? Lest we also be the only show that does head-to-head -head style writing battles. Ever since Ian Dalmat came on our show and promptly put Right Club Chicago on hiatus, we seem to be cornering the market for those hipster intellectual refugees left in the wake of that destruction. Send us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses waiting to breathe free, and I will show with you a stage. It's really incredible what we've done. Twelve shows. And in that time, our cultural impact has eclipsed our wildest imagination. <laughs> we have 110 likes on Facebook. <laughs> That's seven more likes than the Cubs have wins this year. Nobody could have predicted that. This year, the skewer hasn't shied away from the important issues, such as which video game would make the best remake, Oregon Trail or Duck Hunt? Who is a sadder contemporary figure on social media, Jeb Bush or Kanye West? We've solved world hunger, twice. These debates were a part of the initial pitch for the show, but the skewer wasn't always going to be the skewer. I want to share these actual awful titles for the show we wrote down before coming up with the skewer. The Inquisition with Tom and Eric. 30 Days of Spite and Drop Dead Abed, Jesus Christ. We wouldn't have lasted 30 minutes, let alone 12 shows. I'm extremely pleased to have seen the show grow over the past year. I am definitely sad that I couldn't be there with you all to celebrate and raise a glass, but I want to thank you for coming out and supporting us throughout. Special thank you to Cafe Mustache for being such an awesome venue month after month. I'm going to see what I've done and will do such great things with it. I can't say enough about the work that he has put in since the beginning to get to show off the ground. If it's any indication, that's why this dog piece is taking me so long here in Detroit. One day, friends. One day. But about those royalty checks. Well, enjoy, grab another beer at the bar, and I hope to see you all again very, very soon. Those titles were very bad, but it's important to note that they were never, like, considered. There was, you know, brainstorming, get them all on the page, get the bad stuff out so that the good stuff can, uh, can, can eventually make its way out. What we did actually almost end up using was the month kebab. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyway, that was for the skewer, you guys. Thank you all so much for coming. Thanks to our writers. Thanks to Kevin Mustache. Thank you for listening to the Skewer Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on anywhere a podcast might be. You know, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you can do that. You can leave us a review there. That's fine. Uh, you can also come to a live show. We're the first Wednesday of every month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. You can also email us, get in touch if you want to get uh, on the show, skewerchicago at gmail.com. Uh, also, we're on Facebook. Look it up. Look it up. You know, look up the skewer. You'll find it. Okay, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you liked it. Goodbye, see you next month.